Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. And I'm Charlie Matessian, no longer sitting in for Scott Bland. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Charlie. It's great to be back. So uh, what I miss? Eh, not much, really. Breaking news, H.R. McMaster is out. Ambassador John Bolton is in. President Trump is losing one of his closest White House advisors. That's Communications Director Hope Hicks. Meanwhile, the White House is struggling with the fallout from the resignation of White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter. Earlier this evening, New York Times is first to report that the number three official of the Justice Department is stepping down. Her name is Rachel Brand. Well, if you're she just joining us, President Trump's top economic advisor, Gary Cohn, announcing he is resigning in the coming weeks. President Trump has fired his Secretary of Veterans Affairs, David Shulkin. We are back with a Fox News alert. Rex Tillerson out as Secretary of State. President Trump tweeting moments ago. Oh, <laughs> uh, OK. So you guys kept busy is, is what I'm is what I think I'm hearing here. Yeah. Uh, and Nancy was amazing, as always. Thank you guys both so much for uh, for sitting in and, and, and helping while I was gone. And Charlie, thank you for hosting while I was out. And you're sticking around for today's show, correct? Yeah, mostly to make sure you don't screw it up for us. You <laughs> <laughs> haven't lost a step. All right. Well, let's dive right in. This week on Nerdcast, the knives are out for EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. Uh, that's Trump's appointee to head the Environmental Protection Agency. Plus, Donald Trump has been picking fights with two great economic forces, China and Amazon. We will unpack the economics and the politics of that. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin. We're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, April 5th, so it's all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guest, Charlie Matessian, our senior politics editor who needs no further introduction. Hey, Scott. And White House reporter Nancy Cook. Thanks for being here as always. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. All right, so this is our first data point, 50, as in 50 bucks a night. That's what EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt has been paying a lobbyist each time he crashes at his apartment on Capitol Hill. An unusual arrangement, to say the least, and one of many, many controversies dogging Pruitt, which we will dig into right now. So, Nancy, let's start with you. Let's run through some of the damaging stories that have come to light about Scott Pruitt in the last week or so at a time when Donald Trump's cabinet has never been in more turmoil. Yeah, Trump's cabinet is just really shifting now. And I think that's sort of one of the key stories coming out of the White House now, who's coming and going. I had breakfast with the Republican close to the White House this morning, and and all of our gossip was about who's going to get fired next. Um, But in terms of Pruitt, the, the negative spate of headlines just has not really stopped. So there are questions. There have been questions about his first class air travel for a while, which we understand are, is the subject of an inspector general report that we're expecting to come out this summer. 
Uh, and we, we've known about that for a while. But, but there were some new headlines as well. One was that he gave two staffers who are at the EPA, but that had come with him from Oklahoma, where he was the attorney general, really big raises. And basically that he'd gone to the White House, asked for permission to give these raises. The White House personnel office said no. I think one raise was $30,000. One was over $50,000. These are for government employees. And he basically used uh, some money uh, from like a 1978 act that, that gave the EPA a bit more discretionary money, use that sort of pool of money to fund the raises. So that was one very damaging thing. The other thing that came out was that he uh, has been on a per night basis or per diem basis renting this condo on Capitol Hill from uh, an energy lobbyist. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's the head of the EPA. Um, and so that... That has been sort of a, quite a big story, and uh, we we've heard this morning. You know, my sources uh, and also other folks in the White House team have heard that that also may be something that the Inspector General report is also going to be looking into. And the White House really initially, you know, came out and was defending Pruitt. You know, Pruitt is someone who's really enacting this very conservative agenda. He's done a, a, a big job for the Republicans in terms of rolling back the Obama legacy. So sort of no complaints from the White House on the policy side. But people in the White House, including General Kelly, are very frustrated by these bad headlines. And they keep saying, like, are there other stories that are going to come out? And, uh, you know, and, and they're, they, they want the negative headlines to stop. And the recent spate of negative headlines were not the first about uh, Pruitt, right? There, there's been stuff about his pension for first class travel, about his security detail, about renovations to his office to install soundproofing and sweep for bugs and stuff that honestly sounds a little bit goofy, right, Charlie? Yeah. I mean, there's been all of those things. And we know that optics really matter to Donald Trump. And you, I, the, the pushback or the, the reason that it, they, none of this has appeared to stick to Scott Pruitt was that there, there was this idea that he was super or that he is super effective and executing uh, the president's priorities of rolling back environmental uh, rules that President Obama put in place. But, you know, to me, I, I just can't wrap my arm, wrap my arms around that because, I mean, how do you, how do you define super effective or uh, how good he is at that job? I mean, after all, why did, why did they stick by him? He, there is a Republican House. There's a Republican Senate. There's a Republican town. What is so hard about running the EPA in this era and getting regs rolled back. I mean, any moderately competent state official could do the same thing. So that's why I think eventually the White House will ultimately cave in and not protect him anymore. That's really interesting, Nancy. Well, and I do think we've seen a real shift this week. You know, I talked to someone, a White House person yesterday, who said that the situation now is like very fluid and people in the White House are, uh, you know, whereas they were really defending him like maybe mid last week, the situation has changed. And I feel like internally they are reviewing things much more closely. I also uh, we reported this week that, you know, while the president was still supporting Pruitt, you know, last week, let's say he doesn't have a ton of fans among the staff in the White House. You know, I was told that he was seen by folks, um, you know, on one of the policy councils and the communication shop. Uh, in the cabinet affairs as someone who was very high maintenance, you know, who always wanted to have the president's ear, who always wanted to control everything about like the message rollout, wanted everything publicized. And so he already had pissed people off in the White House. And I feel like 
now we're kind of seeing, you know, he doesn't have a huge base of support there. And by way of background, this is someone who's known, we mentioned he was the attorney general of Oklahoma. He's known to have future political ambitions. Uh, It probably didn't help his case uh, that there was a New York Times story suggesting that he wants to run for president someday uh, in in recent weeks. And our own colleague, Politico's Andrew Rasusha, broke the news you know, maybe a month or so ago that uh, Pruitt also really openly has been campaigning and and telling people that, you know, if uh, Attorney General Sessions goes, he wants that job. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that once people start to become too public or they're in the news too much, that is like the kiss of death in the Trump administration, because President Trump does not like to be overshadowed by people. He doesn't like negative headlines. and, And Pruitt is like winning the award for that this week. And I mean, here you have this hyper ambitious guy who uh, has just done the swampiest thing imaginable with this cut rate uh, rental agreement and the uh, conflict of interest that uh, serves as the backdrop there. And 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 this is an essential agency for many members. They're not going to tolerate this. Members of Congress, I don't think they're going to tolerate it very long because I think there's a, a much deeper pool here that they can, that the Trump administration can draw from. Because keep in mind, like this is an agency that Republicans care deeply about. Each party that comes in and holds the White House cares more about certain agencies than others because they're so essential to their agenda. And for Republicans, it's the EPA. It used to be – so back in the 1990s, I remember uh, that the Republican majority then, the one that came into Congress in the Republican Revolution, you know they cared about? OSHA, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They were obsessed with it. That big class of uh, revolution Republicans, all of them were talking about it. Many of them said it was the single reason they ran for Congress because they were businessmen and OSHA regs drove them bananas. Now, though, when you take a look at the composition of the House and the Senate, many of those Republicans feel the same way about EPA, particularly the Southerners and many of the Midwesterners who fear that the EPA has uh, overreached. And so because of that- it touches so many things, right? It touches mining. It touches farming. It touches- uh, Water. All, all sorts yeah. of other industries. Chemicals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the extraction industries that are really important to, uh, not all of them, but many of the ones that are important to the Republican majority. So for all those reasons, this is a, a, posi- a, a position that probably- Probably wouldn't take too long to fill with a top Republican official, and I just don't think that this this waterfall of scandal is going to uh, you know endear him to the White House anymore. I will say the one thing that is working in Pruitt's favor that gives him uh, you know some staying power is that. The White House knows that it has a bunch of confirmation fights coming up. And so you have to get Mike Pompeo uh, confirmed for secretary of state. You have the CIA director. And I think that there's a concern both from people in the know in the White House and also Hill Republicans that you can't just fire the entire cabinet and have a ton go through a bunch of Senate confirmations in a midterm year. And I think that there's a cons- that'll be all the Senate does, right? Well, the Senate's that's all they're going to do anyway. But but the point <laughs> is, like, you can't sort of line up a ton of those. And I think that is what's uh, giving Pruitt a little bit of, uh, you know, a safe zone at this point. Okay, we'll leave it there. But we should say that even as we've been taping this segment, we've gotten new signals from uh, a White House spokesman that Scott Pruitt may be on very thin ice. So we will see uh, if or just how long he manages to last in this situation. Nancy and Charlie, you'll stick around for our next data point, which is 106. That is the number of U.S. goods that China will hit with new tariffs, things like cars, soybeans, aircraft, and so on. We are going to talk about that and about the attacks Donald Trump has been lobbing at another economic power, the online retailer Amazon. We're going to tie it all together in one neat economy-sized package for you. So if we're talking business and economics, you know who we're going to bring in. 
Ben White, Politico's chief economic correspondent, the author of the Morning Money newsletter, and perhaps most importantly, the host of the Politico Money podcast. That's right. We have cross-podcast synergy on this week's episode. Ben, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. It is always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Nerdcast, and I appreciate your shout-out to Politico Money. Great to be here. Thank you very much, Ben. So, Ben, did a trade war start this week? Well, that depends who you ask, even within the White House. Uh, at first, you had Peter Navarro, the top trade advisor to the president, uh, out there talking about the aggressive moves against China. All of these tariffs were going to place on them. Stock market promptly fell about 500 points. And then you had Larry Kudlow, the new National Economic Council director, come out to try to clean up the mess a little bit and say, no, this is not a trade war with China. This is the Trump administration attempting to uh, negotiate with the Chinese to get them to change some of their policies, particularly around intellectual um, uh, property theft and technology transfers. And none of this may ever happen. We're just negotiating. We're saying we're willing to put tariffs on. We want some concessions from the Chinese, but uh, this is not going into effect immediately. And the Chinese tariffs might not go into effect immediately either. Uh, Stock market uh, quickly reverse course wound up that day up 200 points. So I don't think we're in a shooting war, trade war just yet, but we're on the cusp of it and markets are very worried about it. And obviously, there are plenty of American farmers and American companies who like to sell their products overseas, particularly the Chinese. Tariffs uh, on those products are the last things they want. So there are a lot of political considerations at play here. Yeah, Nancy, you've reported that a lot of uh, Republicans are very nervous about that earlier this week. Yeah, you know, a ton of Republicans. It's this interesting thing where, you know, Republicans on the Hill, they're home this week. It's a recess week. But Republicans uh, on the Hill have been very nervous for months that that Trump will do something drastic, what they see as drastic on these trade moves. So they're quite worried. It will be interesting to see when they're back in Washington, what they heard this week on recess. You know, a bunch of the think tanks are up in arms about it. And then also a bunch of the business groups that were really crucial to uh, the White House during tax reform in terms of offering support, you know, doing these big campaigns like the Business Roundtable, um, Americans for Prosperity, which is the Koch brothers back group. You know, they are also not jazzed about the idea of a trade war. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure, I think, from business leaders on the Hill to tamp this down. Charlie, it's it's not hard to see potential midterm election implications in this, right? I mean, I'm thinking the first two products that we listed as examples here, cars, soybeans, that's going right to the heart of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential map. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, remember when Europe was first threatened, what's the first thing they rolled out that they would uh, put duties on? They were talking about bourbon and Harley Davidson's. And so they were sending a message that if you mess with us, we will go after your Senate majority leader, uh, Mitch McConnell, Kentucky bourbon and Harley Davidson, which comes from, uh, you know, the House Speaker state. Uh, So, I mean, that was the the, sort of the first shot across the bow. But when you take a look at and I looked at the list of 106 products, I was really curious about it to see what exactly might get the uh, uh, sub, might be subject to tariffs. And it looked a lot, an awful lot to me like products that tend to be produced in Trump country. Now, I can't say that I did a market analysis of all 106 of them. Come but on, they, Charlie, yeah, why not? But I mean, they do tend, they tend to be in certain sectors. And when you take a look at those sectors, they tend to be overrepresented in Trump country. And so, for example, if you look on that list, vehicles, chemicals, tobacco, cotton, various other kinds of ag products. I mean, we're talking about all of that right in the heart of Trump country. A good example would be there were lots of chemicals listed on that plate, uh, on, on that list, uh, the, the Chinese list, that is. And four of the top five chemical producing states in the United States are Trump states. So uh, there is a distinct 
political component to this, and it's hard to overlook. The thing that stuck out to me was soybeans that I mm-hmm. couldn't stop thinking about. Bloomberg had a great chart out today of all the biggest soybean-producing areas and states. Iowa leads the way, as you might imagine, but Indiana and North Dakota are right up there with Missouri. Those are all big Senate states in 2018 with Republicans trying to go after red state Democrats. Uh, just basically a big swath all across the upper Midwest of major soybean production where you've got a lot of Republican state house majorities, you've got a lot of Republican governors running for re-election. And there was an interesting quote in, in uh, Politico Pro in our agriculture vertical that I just want to share from a farmer named John Kiefner, uh, who pointed out, if you've already bought seeds, you've already rented acres, there aren't many options to change course and plant other crops at this point if you think this big freight train is coming coming down the pike right at you uh, with, with these tariffs. But stepping back a bit, Ben, could this be a strategy to create some sort of negotiating opportunity with China to to pull out a win uh, later down the year with this? Yeah, well, so that's certainly kind of the goal, and that's the hope of uh, those farmers, but also uh, free traders. I mean, you made the point on soybeans. The, the reason these soybean fields exist in these states is to meet Chinese demand. I mean, they are not there for any other reason. The Chinese are huge uh, consumers of some of our agricultural goods, in particular soybeans. So if you have this duty on them uh, that the Chinese are imposing, uh, you are screwed at that point. And uh, so there's a lot of hope that this is a negotiating ploy. Uh, And that's certainly Larry Kudlow's argument. I spoke with him last night for a while about this, and he does believe that he can repackage this whole thing as a negotiating tactic. The problem is, uh, I'm not sure how clear the Chinese are on that. They don't really understand how the Trump White House operates. They see mixed messages all the time. So the risk is that they just go forward with these tariffs. They feel threatened. They feel angered by what we've done. And, you know, the genie is out of the bottle and a trade war starts, even if the Trump administration didn't really mean to and just want to get some kind of concessions. We won't steal your intellectual property anymore. We won't force your technology companies when they come do business here to give us all their proprietary technology. Those are the things the Trump administration wants to accomplish uh, and thinks maybe the saber rattling on tariffs can help them accomplish that. But, you know, I I don't know how good the communication is. I don't know what the channels are like between the two countries at this point. And the Chinese just look at Trump as saying tariffs are coming. Here they come. And they just act and they put them in uh, immediately. And you have the economic and political political ramifications in the United States. So the ideal scenario for farm country and for Wall Street is that this is uh, theater and a new way of trying to negotiate with the Chinese. And and maybe it works out that way. But there's so many dangers of it spinning out of control uh, before any of that can happen. Well, and also just politically, the people that I talk to, there, there's like a lot of stress inside the administration and, and in Washington, at least, that this is really going to step on the Republicans' message for the 2018 midterms. You know, they want, uh, you know, a lot of these people want like donors and, you know, the leaders of these business groups want the White House to be out there touting the benefits of the tax pe- package and the deregulation that they're doing and all these regulations that they've got rid of. They do not want there to be this thing where you know, they gave people this tax cut, but then the price of some consumer goods are rising. And so that there's not really like any net gain to people's paychecks or their bottom lines. And this is really stressing people out. And and I think that they're wondering, well, what is the strategy? And is there even a strategy coming out of the White House as to how we approach the midterms and how we talk about Trump's economic legacy? That's a really good point. Uh, ben, really quickly, so you, you mentioned you, you talked to Larry Kudlow. Uh, this is a, uh, quite the first week that he's leaping into this, this new job at the uh, National Economic Council. 
Yeah, How's he doing? it sure is. Um, he sounded good on the phone to me. He sounded upbeat. And I think, um, you know, Nancy may have spoken with him, too. He has the sense of uh, hopefulness about him that he can navigate this difficult um, fissure in the White House between hardcore MAGA protectionists. Trump has to deliver on his promises to reduce trade deficits and get tough on the Chinese and his people who are pro-growth, tax cuts, don't do tariffs, don't do trade wars, that he can kind of find a third way, a middle ground where the uh, protectionism isn't really protectionism. It's just getting a little bit tougher on our trading partners and negotiating better deals. And he can sell that as ultimately pro-growth. I think, you know, if they're going to find a way to uh, put these two things together, the, you know, pro-growth tax cuts, making people feel good, and the the tariff piece of it, it's going to be that, okay, we might have some short-term market gyrations as people try to figure this out. But ultimately, it's going to be better for our manufacturers and our farmers. They're going to get more access to China, better deals, and it'll all be growthy and happy and uh, wonderful down the road. Um, That's what Larry Kudlow thinks he can do. I'm not so sure that he can do that. Other people have tried and failed in this administration. Gary Cohn, the outgoing NEC director, the former NEC director, had some success on this. He did manage to dial back the steel and aluminum tariffs a little bit. Initially, they were to be applied to everybody, and then he got a lot of carve-outs for some of our biggest trading partners. And I think you know, Larry wants to do the same thing on China. Get some good out of it. Limit the bad out of it. Uh, but one week, you can be excited after one week. I want to talk to him in like one month and see if he's <laughs> completely frustrated and exhausted and, and ready to leave, because that's possible. And I also think just in terms of sort of the dynamics, the power dynamics in the White House, I think one big difference between Larry Kudlow being the head of the NEC and Gary Cohen is that Gary Cohen and Peter Navarro like really were at war constantly over these trade issues. And while Peter and Larry, I think, have different views policy-wise, I think they have a much more cordial relationship. And so I think that will bring the temperature down a bit of on these trade issues and maybe make for like a, if not a totally sort of coherent, laid out policy process, it at least won't be one where there's so much sort of stabbing each other in the back all the time. Yeah, and I would say the same thing is true between Kudlow and Wilbur Ross. They also disagree on trade and tariffs in China and all that, but they're friends, they're buddies. Ross held a dinner for Kudlow to welcome him to town, one of a few of those that have been going on. So I think Nancy's point is is excellent, that Larry has this kind of uh, easygoing demeanor. He's very collegial in ways that, that Gary Cohn wasn't. He was very hard-charging and would yell in meetings and get into shouting matches with Navarro. I doubt you'll see as much of that uh, with uh, Larry Kudlow and Navarro and Wilbur Ross, whether that brings them to Kumbaya and they can have a coherent policy going forward, I don't know. But uh, they'll at least be a little bit nicer to each other, I think. All right. Let's let's uh, shift our, our frame of analysis now over to uh, the president's attack on, on uh, another big element of the economy this week, Amazon. Ben, you had a great headline on a piece you did with our colleague Steve Overly this week about how Trump is bullying the big kid this time in fighting with Amazon. Uh, how so? Well, I mean, Amazon really is uh, the big kid of the digital economy, one of a few big kids. Um, But, you know, 135 million customers, that's more than both Trump and Hillary Clinton got combined in the 2016 campaign. It's got 90 million subscribers to its prime service, which, you know, gives us all the uh, fun uh, two-day free delivery. And it's 
regularly rated for the last 15 years, it's been rated number one in, in customer service. Um, there's a lot of uh, loyalty to Amazon. It has an enormous reach uh, in America. So, you know, in a sense, with these tweets, Trump is taking on a company that, you know, obviously has a huge amount of money and market power, but is also pretty uh, well beloved by consumers who don't necessarily want the guy messing around with their free shipping. So uh, it's a big <laughs> target for him to take on. Charlie, I, I just thought we think about the like political numbers in this so often and seeing that number in the story about how Amazon has more customers than Trump voters plus Clinton voters combined was just blew my mind a little bit. It was just like thinking about the scale of this. I thought the the attacks uh to me, at least, they, they revealed a very anachronistic understanding of, of uh, the American economy and culture. And, and I, I, I feel like Trump does this all the time, talking about industries that are long past their due date. And I think in this case, this was another example of this. Like it was an understand, it, it, it was a failure to understand uh, how things work now, meaning Trump is talking about all the bricks and mortar stores that Amazon uh, is threatening. Well, you know, the horse is out of the barn. That fight happened in the 90s and they and bricks and mortar lost and uh, Amazon was the champion. Like, we're not going back to that. And it was also an understanding by attacking – he's attacking Amazon only because of Jeff Bezos who owns the Post. And, it's, and, the, his, and, and that is because he thinks that Bezos operates like media moguls of old like, you know, Randolph Hearst or Colonel McCormick or, or other people – uh, who use their media outlets as their megaphone to attack their enemies. And that's what he thinks is happening here. So he attacks Bezos' company without really understanding that Amazon has nothing to do with the Washington right. Post. He, he calls it the Amazon Washington Post, but Bezos, who made his money with Amazon, bought the Washington Post and, and holds it separately right. uh, with that money a few years ago. Nancy, how does this stack up against the Twitter fights the president is prone to have and, and often does have? Well, it's just interesting because, uh, you know, people have pointed out, and I think this is true, it's fascinating that for a Republican president, you know, Republicans are supposed to be seen as like super business friendly, that a Republican president would sort of call out individual companies by name and also sort of want to designate winners and losers in the economy. I mean, that's like just a total shift in Republican thinking, which I think we should point out. But one that we've seen to, that this has been going on since he, since oh, before sure, he was elected. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But this is like something that Republican presidents have passed. This is just a huge break in precedent. Right. Um but it, but it's been interesting because I feel like, you know, this is what businesses fear getting called out. You know, there's like a whole crop of professionals in Washington whose job is to consult businesses and prep them for the idea that Trump is going to call them out on Twitter. This is like its own cottage industry in Washington. Um, but I don't necessarily, you know, I think the politics of him doing it uh, is, is you know, interesting. But I, I don't think it's necessarily will hurt Amazon in the long run. Ben, I, something I've been wondering about for a while, um, you know, Nancy just mentioned how companies are preparing, making preparations in Washington for if the president ever takes a swing at them. Is is anyone uh, on on the market side of this? Is any is there anyone who's like getting rich off Trump's tweets about various corporations? There's a like we know the pattern at this point. The the their stock dives often we've seen it come back up, but. I, I, I can't shake this thought that if if someone knows or senses that Trump is about to take a swing at a big company that that uh, and in, in such a market moving way like he does that that there you know there there could be buying and selling and uh, going on behind the scenes yeah. uh, off that. 
Yeah, I mean, there certainly was, like at the outset of this administration, and I, I mentioned this in a magazine piece I did not too long ago that I think we talked about on the show, but um, you know, the idea of setting up Trump desks on Wall Street to buy and sell based on Trump statements and tweets and uh, you know, basically short stocks that the president is about to hit, uh, and then maybe you know, buy them on the assumption that the, uh, you know, the damage is going to be limited and the stocks will go back up. Those mostly got shelved, uh, as far as I know, because nobody could quite figure out when it was going to happen, what was going to set him <laughs> off, what he was going to do. It's just too unpredictable. So they, they gave up on the idea. That doesn't mean there's not some quant manager or hedge fund manager somewhere who's keeping his head down uh, and uh, you know making trades based on what he expects Trump's going to do. I mean, if there were people- Or, who were or gonna, a member at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> or a member at Mar-a-Lago. But that's, I mean, it's an interesting question. If that's actually happening, if like Trump talks to people beforehand about you know what he's going to say and what he's going to do, and they trade on that information, that's very much illegal. Legal. That's insider trading, and the SEC would have to investigate, and and prosecutors would have to prosecute. So people would have to be super, super careful about having a conversation with the president and then making trades based on it. It would not be hard for the SEC to, you know, look at trading in Amazon and see if anybody was shorting the stock right before this tweet storm happened. So you'd be incredibly mm. stupid to to do that. <laughs> but uh, but if you were smart enough to not have any inside information, but just game out, like you know, okay, the president had a you know. A long rainy weekend at Mar-a-Lago and he's going to be tweeting because he has nothing else to do. And I think he's mad about Jeff Bezos now. So I'm going to short a bunch of Amazon. That's a legitimate thing that you could conceivably do. I don't know that anybody's actually doing it, but maybe I'll just quit my Politico job and take that up full time. <laughs> you just build an algorithm based on uh, Fox and Friends segments, right? And then you absolutely could <laughs> trade do off that. that. Uh, yeah. It's not even that crazy of an idea, to be quite honest with you. Well, also, just to just to jump in quickly, um, you know, one thing that when the president does target companies on Twitter, it does other give the businesses competitors really the chance to jump in. And with Amazon, for instance, I am thinking of Oracle. Um, you know, they're one of Amazon's competitors. They're a business to business group. They sell software. You know, Oracle was not uh, didn't have like a lot of juice in Washington in the past administration. However, this administration, they've had a lot of luck. The Oracle CEO was just dined with the president this week, along with, um, you know, internet entrepreneur Peter Thiel in the private residence uh, of the White House. I was told by a administration official that the president really likes the CEO. He's considered her for jobs before um, and that she, you know, is sort of was giving him advice in the way that these business councils uh, that the White House had going at the beginning of the administration you know, they've disbanded those, but but he still meets with CEOs like her privately. So she has the president's ear. And Oracle has also hired all these people who worked in the administration um, or worked on the transition, uh, you know, as consultants or lobbyists. And so it's interesting because they, you know, the Amazon falling a bit out of favor with the president gives Oracle a huge opportunity. And they're really trying to, you know, surround the president and the White House and hire people close to them. Mm, yeah, that's really I would just add one really quick thought on top of that, and it's an opportunity for Walmart too in the online uh, retailing space. Walmart has really been trying to you know play some catch up with Amazon, and if Trump somehow turns this into like Amazon is blue state bad guy, and uh, Walmart could come in as the more Trump voter red state, you should do your online ordering with us and not uh, defy the president. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm Trump could just move on from Amazon and forget all about it. But if he doubles down and starts telling people not to use Amazon, Walmart would have a real opportunity to, to dig in there. That's a that's a really great point. And a, a, just a great reminder in all this that Amazon, in addition to those tens and tens of millions of 
customers uh, that we mentioned earlier also sells uh, a lot of stuff to governments, to cloud services, to businesses, all, all that sort of thing. So we'll see how this all plays out over the next few months and whether some of those competitors are able to actually make inroads in these areas. Guys, that was excellent. Thank you. Ben White, thank you for being here. My pleasure, as always. Thanks for having me. Nancy, great seeing you again in the studio. Thanks. And Charlie, thank you so much for sitting in these last few months. Thank you. Okay, as promised, we're going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan to bring us out this week. Scott Bennett of Ogdensburg, New York, is going to help us out with the credits. Nerdcast is produced by Bridget Mulcahy and Micaela Rodriguez, with help this week from Adrienne Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer. Nerdcast's researcher is Zach Montalaro, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you so much, Scott. Uh, Listeners, we found Scott because he emailed in to say he was a fan, and we didn't just choose him because he has the same name as I do. So if you're a Nerdcast podcast fan who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.